Okay, Hebrews 9 and verse 2. Hebrews 9, verse 2. It says, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. We're studying, Hebrews 9 is going to start out by telling us about the tabernacle in the Old Testament and giving us some details about that tabernacle. And then, then it goes into the fact that now we have a whole better situation because Jesus went into the heavenly one with his blood and then we have access directly to, into heaven to God's throne. So that's the point. But he does, starts out with this reiteration and description of the wilderness tabernacle. If, for, if anybody here doesn't know what that was, when they came out of Egypt in um, when Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea through this miracle, and when God brought them to himself at Sinai, where God gave Moses the law, where he gave the Ten Commandments, at that time, God showed Moses a pattern of a tabernacle that was to be built where God would dwell in the midst of his people. And his tabernacle had a number of important functions. One of, one of the key ones was the sacrificial system. They had a priesthood, which were the descendants of Levi. And Aaron was the first high priest. They had uh, an Ark of the Covenant that was in the holiest place. And where only once a year a priest could go. And we're going to see that here in Hebrews. And so the blood atonement was going on with the sacrifice of animals so that the people would realize their need for the forgiveness of sins. And that God was a holy God and that they dwelt, that he dwelt in their midst, that he called them to have a relationship with himself. So that's what we're going to be studying here. So it says there's an outer one where the lampstand, the table, and sacred bread, this is called the holy place. There was basically three parts of that tabernacle. There was the outer kind of a courtyard place, and then they went in another level where the priests would go in, and then there were the holiest of holies. And the holiest of holies, if you went in there, what would happen? Yeah, you'd die. Because, because of God's immediate presence. So, that's what we're discussing. Let me distribute some verses for people to look up. Well, we, well, I look for some quotes that I wanted to use. Where should we start today? <laughs> How about Kathy? Do you want to look one up? Um, if you could look up Leviticus 24, verses 5 and 6, and Pat, um, Exodus 40, 18 to 20, Noel, Exodus 39, 32 to 34. And there's there's so many more, we can't just read the whole all the descriptions because the whole chapter, by the way, of Exodus 26 is about this. But I want to give you a few descriptions of how God made it very explicit what this tabernacle was supposed to look like. Okay, Leviticus, Leviticus 24, 5 and 6. Okay, so that, that was the sh called the showbread. Have you ever heard of that before? They had the 12 loaves of bread that sat there before the Lord. And that was mentioned here in Hebrews 9 and verse 2. And then Exodus, what was it, 40? Yep. Yeah. 
Okay, that's an interesting translation, atonement cover, which isn't, uh, it's not a bad idea. The atonement cover is the mercy seat, and it was made out of what? Gold. It's the most valuable part. It's pure gold. And what was, what happened there with that mercy seat once a year? Well, there was the two, the cherubim, right? And that's where God's presence. And once a year, the high priest went in with the blood of the atonement and poured it out on the mercy seat. And if God accepted that, the people's sins are taken away. That was at that day of atonement. They said, remember the scapegoat they sent out into the wilderness? Well, that's what we hear. I mean, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but it makes sense. In case he didn't come out, how are you going to go in there and get him? And this was a very valuable piece of, of, the, of all the equipment there was this mercy seat because it was made out of pure gold. It's very, very valuable. And inside the ark, an ark is a, like a chest. And an ark in the Bible is a type of Christ, it's a type of salvation. Remember, Moses was put into an ark of bulrushes. And he was saved. Noah went into an ark. And he was saved. And here this ark has the, the Ten Commandments. And they look, were looking to that that is for salvation. Now the New Testament says that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. So he, in his person, is the one who actually now is um, taking away our sins as we look to him. Uh, okay. So then uh, Noel... Yeah, 39-32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed. And the sons of Israel did according to all the sins and the things they Oh, this was, Have you ever seen a model of this? There are places, people have constructed models of the tabernacle. Just for people to see what it looks like, what it would have been like. And this had to be portable because they were wandering. They were going, they had to carry, they take this all up and move it and set it back up again. So, then it mentions here in verse 2 the, the lampstand. What's the lampstand? That's the menorah. Yeah. Let me uh, read a little bit about what that was like. Um, the menorah was placed at the south side of the holy place, according to Exodus 26.35. It was constructed of beaten gold with three branches springing from either side of a main stem. The main stem and all six branches each supported a flower-shaped lamp holder that was kept lit day and night. The table, together with the concentrated, consecrated bread, stood at the north side of the front compartment. The twelve loaves of bread were arranged in two rows of six each. The consecrated bread was unleavened, a fact that is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but reported unanimously by witnesses contemporary with the writer of Hebrews. So he's thinking of Josephus. So they had this bread, they had the lampstand, and these furnishings of the tabernacle. Then it says in Hebrews 9 and verse 3, and behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. So the holy place, in a sense, is... Divided into two parts. 
Okay, and then there's this veil to veil the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was where God's immediate presence was in, in, a, in a theophany, we call it. Now, you realize God is omnipresent and that no human structure can contain God. Solomon said that when they, when they dedicated the temple. But nevertheless, God's, um, remember the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, so they, that they could visibly see that God was there in their midst, and he was their God, and they were his people. Bert, could you look up Exodus 26, 31 to 33? And, hi, welcome. Um, Tyler, do you want to, I see you don't have a Bible, so go to Tyler here. Could, could you look up Matthew 27.51? Matthew 27.51 and Lath, Hebrews 10.19 and 20. Uh, Exodus 26.31-33. Well, um, I'm going to read a description of the veil in my um, commentary here. The rear compartment was behind the second curtain. The expression inner curtain that screened the rear sanctuary from the antechamber where the priests carried on their daily ministry. This screen was made of fine twisted linen woven with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and was embroidered with figures of cherubim. Behind this curtain was the inner sanctuary designated the holy place. The force of this expression is that of emphatic superlative, the most holy place. Okay, Bert, Exodus 26, 31 to 33. I stole my thunder. <laughs> I stole your thunder. I hate it when that happens. Well, go ahead and read it anyhow. <laughs> Okay, there's the, the instructions that was given to Moses about how to do this. And then, uh, Tyler, I think you have the one about what happened when Jesus died. Tell us about that. So when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Why do you think it says from top to bottom? God did it. Why was the curtain torn in two when Jesus died? He made access. He, by his blood, he made access to God, whereby we could come, come to the to the God, even though he's a holy God, even though we're sinners, and he's a holy God. By the blood of Jesus, we have access, because now our sins are paid for if we are people of faith, and the blood of Jesus appeases God's wrath against sin. I want to talk about that today, because the narrative we're on in Genesis is the Sodom. The destruction of Sodom and how God, God rescued Lot. So they had a pretty good idea in the Old Testament that God's wrath against sin was real. And you see things like that happen. So, and then Hebrews 10 19 and 20. Yeah, go ahead. Since we have a great hope of the past, let us turn to 
Amen. I quoted that one at the end of uh, one of my sessions at the conference, the Faith at Risk conference. I quoted that. I ended with that passage. And what I suggested was that all of these mystical techniques to try to contact God were totally, not only are they forbidden in their divination, but they're totally beside the point if we just understood the Bible. How are you going to get any closer to God than you're going to get from what he just described? If you're going to enter the most holy place through the blood of Jesus, why do you need to go into your subconscious mind using some unbiblical technique? You're not going to get any closer to God. In fact, what they don't realize, they're getting further from Him. They're getting further from God, not closer. And so, we need to make clear what the truth of the gospel is because these alternatives, the only reason these alternatives are succeeding to find followers in the evangelical church today is that obviously people don't know the Bible. They obviously don't understand the implications of the gospel. They obviously feel like there's something deficient. And so the book of Hebrews is very explicit about the glorious privileges we have in Messiah and how foolish it would be to go back to something less or different. So, well, let's go to verse 4 and continue our description of the tabernacle. Having golden altar of incense... And the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which was the golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Um, what was the deal about Aaron's rod which budded? Does anybody remember that story? God shows. Yeah. Yeah. There was a dispute about who were the valid priests. And when his rod butted, that, that signified that Aaron was the one. And so by um, keeping that, they had uh, a remembrance of who the priests were. They couldn't be just anybody. They were the ones that God had chosen, which were the descendants of Levi. Yes. Okay, Kathy. Uh, it says in Hebrews that he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek based on Psalm 110 and verse 4. Great question. That is, that's at the very heart of the whole book of Hebrews. If you didn't hear it, the question was, how could he be of the line of Melchizedek and be the priest if indeed the priest had to come from Levi? The claim here is that Jesus is a high priest. Well, what the, the underlying argument in the entire book of Hebrews is this, that the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical one. And that the Levitical one was deficient because the people that were the priests kept dying and they had to have different priests. And it was inferior because they had to keep going back and offering the same sacrifices over and over and over for their own sins and for the sins of the people. But however, there's this other person called Melchizedek who appeared to Abraham, who received tithes from Abraham, and who had no genealogy. And that this superior priesthood was actually a type of of Christ's priesthood, and then Psalm 110 in verse 4 says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus doesn't have to be a descendant of Levi 
because he's a Melchizedek priest, which is an eternal priesthood. And so that's how Jesus can be both king and priest. He's king because he's a descendant of Judah, and he's a priest because he's appointed one by God in eternity after the order of Melchizedek. Very good question. <laughs> Thank you for answer, asking it. And that'll help us understand this. This Now, to us, why, why would we be thinking about this in the year 2004? I mean, we're not Jewish. We're not living in 60 AD thinking about going back. But we need to know this just as badly as they did because all of these human alternatives, throughout the history of religion, somebody is always wanting to be a, create a new priesthood in order to mediate between man and God. Uh, and almost every culture comes up with priesthoods. You have shamans, you have witch doctors, you have uh, prophets and apostles or whatever they come up with. And we just have a hard time believing in that Jesus is the only high priest and then the priesthood of every believer. Yes. You don't need a shaman, you don't need an intermediary or a holy man who has special secret revelations that you could never come up with. Every, everything that's true and revealed is already given to everybody. It's in here. Every true Christian is anointed of the Holy Spirit. And so what we don't have in the New Testament is any class of special, a special class of, of priests that stand between the people and God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, exactly. Because the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical one, according to the teaching of the book of Hebrews. So praise God we have a high priest who abides forever. And it says he ever lives to make intercession for us. And I guess what saddens me more than anything else is when so many people get distracted by lesser things when they have so much riches. John MacArthur did a series not too long ago called Richer Than You Think. And it wasn't the prosperity gospel. It was about the riches of salvation that we, don't, we just don't imagine what we have. And we're richer than we think. We don't realize that we have things that angels desire to look into. Things that were prophesied in the Old Testament by anointed prophets who were, have a lesser understanding of it than we do. Because we're living in this new covenant era. And they prophesied about it so that we could uh, know these things. So let us uh, draw near with confidence uh, the verse that, that we have here. So now we talk about the mercy seat. Where are we at? The budded, the tables of the covenant. These were all parts of the worship in the old covenant. Steve, do you, do you want to look one up? I got Exodus 16, 33, and 34. Exodus 16, 33, and 34. And um, Keith, Exodus 25, 10 to 16. I think we already did this Exodus 40, 20, so... There's a whole bunch of them. Why don't, um, Denise, do you want to look up Deuteronomy 10, 2, 2 through 5? Okay, when you got it, Exodus 16, 33, and 34. That was the pot of manna. So what are, why do they need a pot of manna? Do you think? Yeah. Amen. So they remember what God did. There's something that is an important thing to understand about the Bible that God is a God of history who acts in history 
and also provides in his acts the meaning of his acts in history. And the Jews were a people of history. And when they preached, they preached history. If you read uh, the Jewish the sermons in the book of Acts, uh, many times they would just recount the history of Israel that, that they did over and over again anyhow at their feasts and Passover. So Stephen, when he indicted the Jewish leaders of their sin, he reminded them that he, there's a whole chapter in the Bible where Stephen's preaching to them about their own history. And what did he tell them? Well, you know our fathers that you know God sent prophets and we killed them and he sent other righteous men and we wouldn't listen to them and God was very patient and he preached all the way up and he brings it all the way up to Jesus and he said, now Jesus was sent by God and we killed him too. But God raised him from the dead. And they got, so what did they do when Peter told them all that? They killed him. But the history is important because that's how they know who God is, what he said, what he did. So this pot of manna was their history that we remember that for 40 years God fed us miraculously in the wilderness. So we know that God is a God of provision. Yeah, amen. So that's what that was about. Um, what did I have here? Number 17? Is that it, Keith? Okay, do that one. Do number 17, 5 through 10 then. They rebelled against God and got swallowed up, and now it's Moses' fault. Yeah, it's fun to be the Moses. Huh? <laughs> oh, boy. Maybe they ought to just get the idea to listen to God. <laughs> so they saw the thing. So that was the story of the rod that budded, and it's proved that God had chosen Aaron and the Levites to be his priests in the midst of this Korah's rebellion. And Korah and his company dropped right into Sheol. Just like that. Wow. Interesting history, isn't it? <laughs> and then they still grumbled because they blamed Moses. It was his fault. Okay, Deuteronomy 10, 2-5. So now we have the Ten Commandments. So we have Potamana, reminds them of God's provision. The Ark that budded reminded them of Korah's rebellion, the fact that only the Levites are the true priests. And they have the Ten Commandments to remind them that God spoke to Moses and gave him his law on the mountain. And there were two tablets. Now, a lot of scholars think, just in case you want a little tidbit here, that it's possible that all Ten Commandments were on each of the tablets. And the reason is that in these kind of treaties between a king and, and his vassals in the Old Testament, when they, when they had a covenant, they, they wrote it out twice. One was for the king and the other was for the people. So it's possible that that's, there was that kind of thing, that, that one tablet is for God and one was for the people so that they would remember this is, this is the deal they have with God. Uh, how, I don't know if that's, I don't know if anybody will know, but that's one possibility. Others think that five, five commandments are on one and five on the other. But however it is, they did have the Ten Commandments that were there and they were kept in the ark. What's, the Ten Commandments have a lot to say, but 
one of the most important things about the Ten Commandments is that God's made a covenant with these people, and he has given them the terms of the covenant. And if they refuse to abide by the terms, then they become covenant breakers. All right? And so the Ten Commandments are, are God's... It's also, it's interesting, it was written, the original one, by the finger of God. So they had sacred writing that came right from God that explained God's law. And God's law tells them that they're sinners. Yeah, they said, Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to die. But you know, it's a, the Ten Commandments are still valid. And um, it, the law is important today just like it was in that time. And it isn't important in the sense that we think if we just keep enough laws, we're going to be saved by law-keeping. That's false. But it's important to show us that we can't be saved by law-keeping and that we need a Savior. All right? And there's not enough preaching of the law nowadays. And so people have no... Their, the idea that people get is that what they're suffering from isn't being under the wrath of God against sin. They're suffering from a lack of fulfillment. It's a lack of, yeah, I'm not happy, I can't find my purpose, or I don't, you know, there's something I'm missing. And then the answer is, well, Christ will give you that thing that you're missing, that uh, whatever it is. And that's not the biblical gospel. And if the law is not preached, the gospel makes no sense. And if we know we've offended a holy God, which, see, that's why we're studying this. The people in the Old Testament, do you think they knew this? They saw Korah drop into the ground. They, they saw the holiness of God in their midst, and they had all these rules, realizing that, that this is God, the, the manna. They saw the manna. They saw God provide for them, and they had the commandments, and they knew they, their history told them that God's a holy God and that they are sinners. And the Day of Atonement was a vivid you know, demonstration of that. But... To modern evangelicals, that whole concept seems to be lost. And the only thing we're worried about is maybe having a lack of happiness in our lives or a lack of fulfillment. And there's no, no sense of a lack of forgiveness of sins if we don't even realize that's an important issue. And so I agree with people who are like John MacArthur and Ray Comfort are probably the most famous people preaching what we're talking about right now is that the law of God needs to be preached as well as the gospel so that people know what it is that they're fleeing from and what God's promise of forgiveness. And then, what a joyous thing when you know your sins are forgiven. Yes, Kathy? Okay. Uh, so if I, I would reiterate that question is that by grace through faith we're saved, right? And Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled the law. And that we receive forgiveness of sins. So the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. What role does the law have now as Christians? The law never ceases to give us moral guidance. The, the law is, is, in a sense, giving us the parameters of what it looks like to be Christ-like. And um, we don't believe that we perfectly achieve that in this life, but we press on to the 
as Paul said, to the high calling of, of God in Christ. But the law will always give us guidance. Otherwise, we, we'd be lawless, antinomians. Um, I First John is a lot about this. First John is against several things, Gnosticism, but also antinomianism. Have you ever heard this word antinomian? It means against the law. It's a sort of a libertine version. You can do anything you want now that you're a Christian because God is not concerned about it. And First John is written against that. I remember one time I was doing a joint um, seminar with a church in St. Paul called, I think it was a Chinese, uh, it was the Chinese Christian Fellowship of one sort. And we had some friends, I still know some of these people that were in this Chinese fellowship. They used to come here for a while, now they have their own group. And we had a joint uh, seminar and we were having a question and answer time and a Chinese pastor was there and one of the people was looking at this passage in First John where it says um, he, who, he who is born of God does not sin. Remember that passage? And this person said, well, how would anybody ever think they're born of God? Because we can't say we don't sin. It says in First John 1 that if you say you have no sin, you lie, and the truth is not in you. So how do you reconcile those? And this pastor was so kind and pastoral. He says, well, here's, here's how this works. When you become a Christian, and you trust Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and you're born again, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't mean you never sin, but when you do sin, you feel very badly, he said. You feel very badly that you failed your Lord, and it grieves you. And you feel like you need to go repent and confess your sins and have God forgive you. He says, that will always be the case. But because his seed remains in you, you won't, the word, Christ, you have to go to the Greek, continually sin. You'll never be able to just continually sin and feel good about it as a Christian. You'll have something in you that wants God to change you. That's a sign that he's the Holy Spirit's at work. So it was a very pastoral way of explaining this to somebody. And it's not like it's hopeless. God does progressively change us. But a born-again person can't just cavalierly go through life not caring whether their life ever changes. And the law helps us saying, okay, here's what it looks like. Yes, Steve. Yeah. It's, it's a sign of that we're regenerate, that we're even concerned. Remember what Paul says in Romans 7? He says uh, um, he, he, was, he was feeling just really great about himself until he was confronted with the fact he's covetous. You might be able to keep some of the Ten Commandments, but has anybody ever not coveted? Yes. One more point, okay. Okay, well, let's get back to our Hebrews, all right? All right, Hebrews says this here. Where were we at? The budded, uh, the manna and the rod. Let's go to verse 5. we got time for another one here. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Well, it sounds like he is speaking in detail, but there's more detail here. Um, we already talked about the mercy seat. Right? What was that made out of? Pure gold. It wasn't overlaid wood. It was pure gold. 
the most valuable piece of the whole thing. Um, a couple passages here. Um, Dan Litsky. I gotta look back and make sure we didn't already do some of these. Um, Exodus 37, 6 through 9. And then Brian. Leviticus 16, 11 to 14. I know it's kind of a yeah. That's in. Well, it's universalism is very popular idea that everybody's okay just the way they are, and so I mean that's why our. Well, so that proves that proves that God is merciful. That's like your buddy. Yeah, you know your buddy that that emailed me. That's basically what he says. His proof that there's no God is the fact that God doesn't judge him even though he refuses to serve him. <laughs> I said, no, that proves that God's... Yeah, this easy has told me that I know there's no God because, see, I renounced God and now I'm happier than I ever was. He isn't doing anything to me. Yeah, but what about these evangelicals? Why do they always think everybody's the children of God? I don't know. In the Old Covenant, they were, had to be Jewish, and if you went into the Holy of Holies, right, you could die. But today, the holiest of holies, the gospel is mocked to no end. Thank God they don't die. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that in church because I'm going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. So, okay, go ahead here. Amen. <laughs> six, six through 37, six. Exodus 37, 6 through 9. And he made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was the length thereof, and one cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And he made two cherubim, two cherubims of gold, beaten out of one piece, made he them on, on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the end on this side, and another cherub on the other end on that side. Out of the mercy seat made he the cherubims of the two ends thereof. And the cherubims spread out their wings on high, and covered with their wings over the mercy seat, with their faces one to another. Even to the mercy seaward were the faces of the cherubims. That's how it was. Yeah, the angels were over the mercy seat there. Um, must have been a magnificent piece of uh, 
furniture in there. And, um, and well, whatever it is now. <laughs> well, they had a movie about that, but I don't think the movie—I don't think the movie was right. <laughs> Harrison Ford didn't find it, did he? All right. Okay, let's go to um, Leviticus 16, 11. 11th report. Yeah. So that was what had to happen on the Day of Atonement. The blood was brought right literally into the mercy seat. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's going to be better. <laughs> Hebrews 9, 6 says, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing divine worship. So the, what Brian just read about it was something that happened once a year. But they had something going on every day. Continually, they were doing sacrifices. The, the Levites had a lot of work to do. Yes, yes which uh, Jesus doesn't have to do because he was sinless. Okay, so, Dean, could you look up at Exodus 27, 21, and... I think I'll do one too. Luke 1, 5 to 13. I'm going to read about a guy who was one of these Levites that ended up having a very special privilege. The guy I'm going to read about was one who, they had so many Levites by the time of Christ. Did you know this? That there were so many courses of them that they were maybe lucky once in their lifetime to actually be the one on duty. Because as you know, the people, you know, generation after generation, you got one temple. There's a few things that need to be done, and thousands of Levites. So they they would very, very rarely be on duty. I was reading, I think Josephus talks about that. And um, and so so Zacharias happened to be on duty. Well, I'm going to read it. I'm going to handle myself. Go ahead and read your Exodus 1. Yeah, 27, 21. Yeah. Well, the person I'm talking about, I think, I can't remember where I got the information about how rarely it was that they were ever actually on duty. Probably, jo, probably either Josephus or Edersheim, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. There's probably a description in there, but they had courses. They had, they had it all divided up into these courses of different groups of priests. And that's mentioned here in Luke 1, starting with verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. So divisionists, how they had all kinds of divisions of the, to try to keep straight of when it was their turn to go in there, okay? And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So these are two of these priests, these Levites. 
And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. So this was his one time to be there. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense. Okay, so they had so many of them. They had to, okay, it's down to your order. Now within your order, let's throw lots to see who gets to go in. Yeah, there was the lot. And so it fell to him. So this is an unbelievable privilege. He's actually going to get to do it. It's not like if you're a priest, this is what you're doing. You may go most of your life and never go, go to the temple because there are just too many, thousands of them. Thousands and thousands of priests. So when is going to be their turn? So this, so this is an amazing thing. Now he's actually personally going to be going into the temple. He's chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. For your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. So he became the father of John the Baptist. And so there was a certain Levi who uh, had quite a, quite a day. Not only was he, the lot fell upon him to go. When he goes, he sees an angel, and he ends up receiving a special promise and a blessing. And his son becomes John the Baptist. Isn't that cool? So that is about what the priesthood is about. Um, next week we'll start with verse 7. And it won't be long and we'll get down to the blood of Jesus Christ. In, in chapter 9 there's some fantastic discussion. Well, just to give you a little preview, what we're going to find out is that the blood of bulls and goats was an external thing. The blood of Jesus cleanses the conscience. He cleanses us from the inside out. So that's a much better word. This morning, our sermon is going to be from Genesis chapter 19, the story of Lot, the angels, and the destruction of Sodom. So, we'll talk about that then. Do we, we, uh... No, there's no relationship, I don't think.